Hi everyone, welcome back to Art to Finish. I'm your host Erin and I am super excited to talk to you this week in the podcast's first real episode Um, and I hope that you're all doing well. I probably sound a little bit low energy right now. It's honestly close to my bedtime when I'm recording this episode but this is truly the best time for me to record this, so I'm going to do my best to rally for this episode, and we're going to have a lot of fun together getting back to the basics. That's our theme for this week. Also, apologies in advance if at any point during this episode or any future episode you hear some, you know, weird background noises. I am quite fidgety. I have pretty apparent ADD, um, and I live in a... uh, ground level apartment with very noisy neighbors on a very noisy street. So um, only so much can be done to mitigate that. So I hope that you'll bear with me if you do hear any weird background noises or hear me fidgeting throughout the pod. Trust me, I am doing my best, um, but hopefully you can bear with me all the same. All right, now that I've uh, moved that little disclaimer out of the way, uh, we'll get down to the bread and butter of this episode, and that's back to the basics. Uh, For some of you who are listening that are in this field, this episode might be a little bit boring for you, but I'm hoping and trying my best to still make it exciting. It's going to be a lot of what you already know, but keeping with the theme of this podcast, I want things to be as accessible and easy to understand as possible, and I think that this theme being my first real episode is very apt and very appropriate for that. You know, in art history, and I think less so in cultural heritage uh, studies, but still somewhat, we do talk a lot amongst ourselves about how intimidating this field can be, whether that be for, like, the inherent elitism that comes with it or just the kind of uh, reputation the arts can get as being somewhat snobby and less accessible than other fields. Um, I think that a lot of people get turned off and are nervous to maybe like in some of my friends who are not in the field's own words sound silly or dumb if they say the wrong thing and I would really like this episode to kind of be the opposite of that. Like I'd like to educate you on some of the terms that I've frequently used and I know are really important while also understanding and making it known that you don't have to know these things to hold an opinion Um, or express interest in art or cultural heritage. It's just something that might be relevant for you to know um, for later on episodes. Like, for example, I expressed interest in art history really early on, um, and that's primarily because I was given access, which I talked about in the introductory episode, at a very young age. I was 16 when I took my first AP art history class. Um, but I didn't even really know cultural heritage was a field until I explored um, the documentary The Rape of Europa based off of the book The Rape of Europa, um, which is about art theft during World War II and subsequent restitution and rape- repatriation, which ultimately is what became my uh, master's thesis. Um, but yeah, like those things weren't talked about like it wasn't it wasn't something that I even knew existed and then I was researching my college and saw they offered a cultural heritage and preservation program which made it all the more interesting for me and made me want to go there more because it was an option that I could learn those things but I do understand that that isn't an option for everyone so my hope is through this episode we can kind of break down that barrier a little bit even in just the smallest way for the few people that are listening here um and we can kind of explore what i really didn't get an education on until i was god a junior first uh first semester of my junior year of college when i took my first introduction to cultural heritage and preservation studies course so yeah i think that this should be really fun and uh that's really my goal here and I know that I've said it like a million times at this point between this this last episode and this one, but education, um, especially with a field like this, is so important um, because when you don't have access to things like cultural heritage studies or just, you know, the concept of like what is cultural heritage as a whole, it kind of gives the powers that be and just like large oppressive entities or just, you know, hierarchies the ability to erase culture. Um, like, you know, what's coming to mind is Seneca Village, which was then steamrolled and, you know, forced to have its citizens vacated in order to make Central Park. It's kind of those things 
that I really take interest in and really feel that educating on this subject is especially imperative to do because it allows us to understand what is cultural heritage, what is cultural heritage to me, what does it mean on a global scale. And you know, it's important to me too that there's just something for people like me who didn't really know that this was even a thing until they were in their late teens, early 20s to grasp onto. And if you're at a point in your life where you're thinking, hey, I, like, I really don't know if I what I want to do or I'm doing something with the arts and it's not what I wanted to do and I'm really not sure where I'm going. Or maybe you're not doing anything related to art at all and you hear this podcast and you're like, hey, this is something that takes real interest, um, that I take real interest with. My hope here is that you might be able to explore that on a more serious level if you so choose um, or even just have an outlet to express that interest in a safe space where I am clearly not going to judge you and I'm just here to provide as much information in an exciting way as possible. And to my point there too, like a lot of people have asked me and it was something that I actually got questioned about a lot when I told people, especially people who are older than me, like more adultier adults, the the, the more adulting adult, <laughs> um, why I was going into art history or what I wanted to do with it, there was kind of always this this the sigh or an eye roll or an immediate hostility like oh so like what do you think you're going to do with that and I think that it's almost you know I mean I obviously know that the arts are a very difficult field to break into um, especially the field of art history especially the field of cultural heritage um, it's it's not always a super welcoming field it's very cutthroat opportunities are far and few in between. And so on one end, I understand people, especially people who are older than me, asking me, well, what are you going to do with that? But there is also this kind of like hidden double meaning there that really was saying, well, why would you even consider the arts important enough to pursue a career in? And that's like a really loaded question, obviously. <laughs> And, you know, I get it. The arts are not always a lucrative, uh, often not a lucrative uh, field to go into. But something that I think is really important to recognize is not everybody is, you know, a STEM major. Not everybody has a mind that works in that way. I certainly don't. <laughs> um, and so I do obviously get a little heated and I do take a little offense when people ask me, like, what's so important about the arts? And I kind of feel like I want to say to them, well, what's not? What's not important about the arts? Because the arts, in my opinion, are the only field that truly allows you to express yourself in a way that is indescribable. Like, I cannot even begin to try and verbalize just how important the arts can be for self-growth, whether that be in a field of confidence and self-worth, or whether that be in just, you know, pursuing one's passions. For me, art is not just, and the field of art history and everything related to it is not just, oh, like, I like looking at pretty things, and so that's why I went into art. For me, it was like, I see real promise here in expressing what I'm passionate about, what I care about, and I see people like me who are also invested in creative pursuit, but also invested in other things like social justice and um, just having very like strong morals and values and using art and the arts in general as a pathway to express that. And it's a beautiful thing. It allows us just such a level of freedom that I don't feel I would have gotten anywhere else. Like, you can learn so much from just looking at the field of art history, the canon, the art historical canon, um, which, granted, is riddled with a lot of um, questionable decisions and would really uh, benefit from some editing and um, some additions instead of just a Western Eurocentric opinion. That aside, you can look at the canon of art history. You can look at um, 
all of the pieces that you learn in an art history survey course and say to yourself, wow, I wouldn't have gotten this um, perspective of, of people's opinions, people's attitudes, their thoughts and beliefs at a particular time um, had I not taken this class. And sometimes I feel like art history classes are better at expressing a moment in time than traditional history courses are. Like I was a history minor in college and I, at every chance that I could get, would research art history and artists, paintings, um, periods, movements, genres of those periods that I was learning about in my traditional history classes to really get a deeper feel for what was going on at a given time because once again art is this is the thread of creative expression throughout the entirety of history and so I feel like if you really want to know on a deeper level what's going on what what's happening um, you just have to look at any part of art history and relate it back to the history that you're learning or that you know of and you can see even more of the human experience through that lens. All right, so now that I've uh, soapboxed <laughs> uh, far too long about what I believe art to be and what art is to me and all of that uh, good stuff, let's let's get to the ba- let's get down to it. Let's get to the the back to the basics that I promised you in this episode. So, what is art history? Um, in my opinion, it's the study of artists, art objects, and their respective time periods, genres, and movements. I have that written down in my cute little script that I look at during episodes. And I feel like to kind of explain art history is a huge undertaking, which I'm not even going to attempt to do. Um, but I am going to kind of give you an idea of what you would be looking at if you were to take an art history class in college and like the way that that presents itself and the kind of basic education that people who um, take art history or take art history classes for electives or take art history minors, um, what they get into for their intro courses. Because I feel like if you see that for what it is, it's a lot easier to understand how people like me are educated and um, the way in which we look at um, our field and the fields around us. So typically art history classes are broken down for their introductory um, courses are broken down into two survey classes. Um, the first one being prehistory to the Renaissance and the second one being Renaissance to modern and contemporary or some iteration of that. I actually took that those classes as one class for the entire year of my AP art history class in high school and then I took it again as two separate courses um, like I stated before, for my first year of community college. Um, And these classes, they more or less function as visual quizzes in which you're presented with works from a specific time period and then eventually a specific artist. And you're taught about key points surrounding the movements, the time periods, the artists, and their works. You're also then taught how to differentiate between specific artists' works and their styles of the same movement um, and the trends that define that period based off of all of these criteria. Um, And the intention really is to present you with the breadth or the range of the history of art from the moment that human beings began making art um, until the present day and what we're creating as of now in the modern moment. Um, And that's obviously a huge undertaking to learn about art history from beginning until now is not something that you can cram into one class, let alone a year of classes, but we sure do try. Um, And it kind of shapes the way we view the canon of art history, or rather the timeline of art history. With something like that, you know, with something like that, where there's so much to be done, so much to be learned, obviously there there's a lot lacking too. Um, And these survey courses are notorious for leaving out anything that does not encompass a Eurocentric or Western um, perspective of art um, and art in general. So basically, like, I did not even learn about the Harlem Renaissance um, until I think I was a junior in college. Like, I kind of knew of it just based on mentions here and there in my textbook, but those things were not actively taught to me in any of my introductory courses prior to a modern and contemporary art course that I took. And I distinctly remember um, skipping over a course about, um, oh sorry, not a course, a a lesson about Polynesian art um, because my teacher said we just simply didn't have the time. And if you're 
to look in a Gardner's or a Janssen's art history textbook, which are the two main textbooks that you use when you're taking introductory courses. They're like the Bibles of art history, essentially. Um, the sections on, you know, the continent of Africa and places like Asia, the continent of Asia, and just anywhere that is not the West, um, are severely lacking. Like, there will be 30 pages about the Renaissance in Europe, and then there will be two pages to encompass the entirety of art in all the countries in Africa for all of time. And you can understand, then, why that's problematic and why it creates and raises art historians who don't value any art or any culture other than Western culture and Western art and why it becomes very difficult for students who are seeking out that information in those classes to gain access to it because a lot of the times you'll ask these professors or you will reach out and look for that information on your own and you're either met with a lot of resistance or you're met with just a lack of information. And that can be incredibly frustrating. And that is why it's difficult when you first start um, taking art history classes to fully understand the scope of what you're learning, because you have to be self-aware in knowing that what's being presented to you a lot of the time is not the full picture of what you should be getting in terms of this is the timeline of art history. This is the arc of this study that we're learning. To me, it just like all of that made it seem like anything that wasn't Western was treated like an in inconvenience, um, irrelevant, or it was just plain ignored. And that's why I think having this conversation and being very upfront and honest with you about this is what a lot of art historians are brought up on is really, really necessary because then it makes more sense as to why when you look at modern museums and modern galleries, why you're seeing the same things kind of over and over again and why you do have um, galleries and museums run by BIPOC who are like, I've had enough. I, I, want, I want to see representation that doesn't just include white people, for lack of a better term. Um, and that's really exciting to see, but it's also really hard because the field in its in and of itself is very resistant to that sort of change. And while I am thrilled and ecstatic to see this sort of change and see all of the people that I know and the people that I don't know who are working and striving towards this better view of the art historical canon a more accurate view of the art historical canon. There is a lot of the old guard who are not obviously as thrilled and like things the way they are and believe that they should be this way because they've always been that way. Um, and this podcast in and of itself is trying to break that, is trying to kind of break away from that mold of the strict idea of what art history and cultural heritage should be, not only to the people who work within the field, but what we present to the public and what we give to the public to consume as art and as cultural heritage. Okay, so in the spirit of um, disseminating important information to the public, the latter half of this episode is going to focus on a mini glossary that I've created using a larger glossary produced by ICOMOS, um, the International Council on Monuments and Sites. Um, and we're going to basically go through and talk about these definitions and these vocab words because they're going to come up in later episodes. In my mind, they're intrinsic to both of these fields as a whole, and I think that it's just really helpful in general to know about them and to have a basic understanding of them. And I'm going to also link the larger glossary um, in the description for the pod this week if you're interested in just looking at it at what it is as a whole and maybe learning some other terms it's i think it's called the um it's like the glossary of conservation of heritage or something like that and so there's a lot of really interesting conservation and preservation terminology on there there's some vocab about um different systems that we use in the field and um it's it's a very good resource and i would implore all of you to take a look at it after you listen to this episode um just to get an even better idea of what's in store um in this field and in this podcast, honestly, moving forward. 
Um, so I'm just going to go through, I'm going to read the definitions, um, and then I'm going to kind of break them down as I see fit um, and kind of explain to you the context that I would use them in um, and how I may use them in in the future and, you know, things I think that are interesting about all of them and why I think they're relevant. So for our first word of the day, it's going to be aesthetic value. Um, also, side note, all of these words are in alphabetical order because that's just how I pulled them, so that's kind of nice and neat. <laughs> so aesthetic value, as listed from this glossary, is the aspects of sensory perception for which criteria can be stated. These criteria may include consideration of form, scale, color, texture, and material of the fabric or landscape, the smells and sounds associated with the place and its use. Um, so in simpler terms, I believe aesthetic value to be the way in which we perceive the visual of some art, um, monuments, cultural heritage sites. The aesthetic value that we place on it is based on how we perceive that visual to make us feel. Um, so like they said, that could be the form, the scale, the color, the texture, the material, um, whatever those things that are associated with that particular piece of art, that monument, or that site, um, the aesthetics of that and the value that we place on that object based on those aesthetics. So I guess an example would be um, a cathedral. Like if you were to look at a cathedral and you were just, just in awe of the stained glass on that cathedral, for you, the aesthetic value of that cathedral comes from the beauty of the stained glass. That is what you perceive to be the most visually pleasing or the most important aspect of that particular building. Value is kind of tough too, and I think this is an important thing to note here um, for this definition and for all the definitions. A lot of this is subjective. Um, value is placed by us just on opinion, really, right? And Sometimes it's based in fact, sometimes it's based on, hey, I just really like this thing and so I'm giving it value. So there are even certain um, texts that have been produced by our cultural heritage um, organizations internationally that define how to determine value and aesthetics is one of them and there are also a variety of other criteria that you can actually find in the glossary that I mentioned earlier. Um, but value, just like a lot of other um, terms on this list, is really subjective. So it's kind of an open-ended question as to what is value, how do we place value. So it's really interesting to think about it um, when you kind of dive deeper. So our next word on the list is authenticity and you might be saying to yourself, Erin, I am not stupid. I know what authentic is. I know what authenticity is. And I would agree, you are not stupid. Um, but authenticity is actually defined differently in this field um, and just based on application. And so I thought it was really interesting that this definition is what they choose to use for authenticity. So it says, a culturally contingent quality associated with a heritage place, practice, or object that conveys cultural value is recognized as a meaningful expression of an evolving cultural tradition and or evokes among individuals the social and emotional residence of, residence of group identity. That last part is so interesting to me because it's actually the way in which I identify authenticity in my own research and in my own practices. Um, and what they're really saying here is authenticity is not just, you know, the fact that a heritage site is where it is or an art piece is done by a certain artist or anything like that. What they're saying here is that the individuals, the stakeholders, which is a term that we're going to get to a little bit later on, um, their emotional and social connection and the way in which that object resonates with them is what gives the authenticity because it provides a group identity and it provides therein something for them to relate to. Um, so an example that I can think of is the Bamiyan Buddhas um, that were in the Bamiyan Valley in Afghanistan um, prior to their destruction by the Taliban in the early 2000s. Those Buddhas were a huge facet of the way in which 
the people in that valley associated their cultural identity as well as their religious identity. And thus, those Buddhas become authentic in their relationship with the people that lived near them, if that makes sense. Next up on our docket is um, a really straightforward one. It's condition assessment. Um, condition assessments are something that we as cultural heritage um, professionals use a lot, especially in terms of the more physical real world, real world application of cultural heritage. Um, so condition assessments are a record of the state of the critical aspects of the place at a given time. This should be suitable for developing options for future action and as a record against which to judge change. Um, so, for example, um, I performed a condition assessment at one point um, for a course that I was taking on a statue on my college campus. Um, and basically, the condition assessment asks us to observe, in this case, a monument and recognize um, what is what is it made out of? Um, what are the aspects that you can recognize that may be affected by erosion? Um, is the material, has the material changed over time? Is that because of weather? Is that because of a different kind of damage? And then once you have this condition assessment of the condition of the monument or the heritage site, whatever it may be, um, you're able to determine what next steps you should take in either conserving it or keeping it as it is or doing whatever that particular team is intending to do with the monument or you can use them as records to say, all right, well, and this year it had a little bit of rust on this side and now three years later there's rust all the way across. And so you're able to kind of keep this as a written document that expresses how a site, how a monument has changed over time and what that change then means for your future action plans. Then after that, the next word on our list is conservation. I threw this one in here um, because in regular everyday um, language, a lot of people mistake conservation and preservation for the same thing. So conservation as defined by this glossary says that conservation means all the processes of looking after a place so as to retain its cultural significance or all efforts designed to understand cultural heritage know its history and meaning, ensure its material safeguard, and, as required, its presentation, restoration, and enhancement. So, conservation is not even just the process of this is how we protect, but it's also about retaining cultural significance. So, a lot of the times, conservation is seen as just a safeguard, um, but this definition also explores the idea that conservation is an enhancement of these objects, of these spaces, um, because it retains the cultural significance. And I think that's particularly interesting because when you talk about conservation, just in general terms, we don't talk about cultural significance per se. We, you know, we talk about the idea of protection and going to the absolute length needed to make sure that something is kept in the state that it has always been or maybe changed in some way to keep it from deteriorating further. Um, and this is saying that the cultural significance is the key point in leading us to conserve something. And I think that that is really important in understanding the root of what cultural heritage and what art history is really seeking to do in my in my eyes or in rather my opinion. <laughs> and next we have the actual term, the word cultural heritage. Um, and I actually threw this one in here for a variety of reasons. On a personal note, my mentor actually taught my intro to cultural heritage and preservation um, course, which was like the first course that I took related to this field. And I very distinctly remember her asking us either on our first day of class or our second day of class, what we thought cultural heritage was and, you know, what that, those two small words meant for this entire field. And I remember being really stumped because after we told her what we thought, she kind of ran through and explained to us all the things that cultural heritage can be and like all the ways that it can shift and change. And she actually gave us um, as one of the examples of what cultural heritage could be this definition that's listed here. So 
It's from Article 1 of UNESCO's Convention Concerning the Protection of World Cultural and Natural Heritage from 1972, which is one of the conventions we'll talk about later on. And it says, for the purposes of this convention, the following shall be considered as cultural heritage. Monuments, architectural works, works of monumental sculpture and painting, elements or structures of an archaeological nature, inscriptions, cave dwellings, and combinations of features which are of outstanding universal value from the point of view of history, art, or science, groups of buildings, groups of separate or connected buildings which, because of their architecture, their homogeneity, or their place in the landscape, are of outstanding universal value from the point of view of history, art, or science." Sites, works of man, or the combined works of nature and of man, and areas including archaeological sites which are of outstanding universal value from the historical, aesthetic, ethnological, or anthropological points of view. That was a mouthful, <laughs> but what I would like you to key in on here and think about for future episodes is exactly what my mentor um, told me in one of those very early cultural heritage intro courses, and that this idea of universal value is central to what cultural heritage is. And universal value is supposed to be seen from the best way that I can describe it as the way in which we internationally as a community value something. Like our conventions and our requirements for value then placed on these monuments, these paintings, these environments, um, and that, in turn, is what makes cultural heritage. Now, a lot can be said for what is outstanding universal value, like who defines universal um, value? And to that question, I would say it's usually defined um, on paper by UNESCO, which is the extension of the United Nations. Uh, United Nations. Um, and through UNESCO, um, we're supposed to understand outstanding universal value under their terms. Um, but obviously, something like that is up for debate, can be subject to debate, because you have to think about the way in which these cultures, who we are protecting the heritage sites, the art, and whatnot um, of, actually view the value of those um, objects. So the way that they perceive the value of things may be entirely different from the way this governing body um, values them and the criteria these stakeholders these people who like live with these objects or are related to these objects um, the value that they place on them and the things that they feel are most important may be very different than what this governing body determines to be the most important and so cultural heritage really becomes this kind of amorphous um, ever-changing thing and I don't think and I would hope that you would agree with me, it can be really defined by just a single set of terms. We can try to define it by these single sets of terms for the purpose of academic research and for the purpose of, you know, deciding world heritage sites. But on a deeper level, it really comes down to perception and it comes down to values placed on and by the cultures in which these items are coming from. Our next word is kind of off of that same vein, um, cultural property. So cultural property is, in the easiest way that I can describe it, what is being protected by cultural heritage. Cultural property is cultural heritage, if that makes sense. Um, so they define cultural property as objects, collections, specimens, structures, or sites identified as having artistic, historic, scientific, religious, or social significance. Um, and then the secondary definition is objects that are judged by society or by some of its members to be of historical, artistic, social, or scientific importance. Cultural property can be classified into two major categories movable objects, such as works of art, artifacts, books, archival material, and other objects of natural, historical, or, or archaeological origin. And then they don't include um, the second uh, category, it seems, which is odd. Um, but yeah, so short and sweet, cultural property is those things that we were just talking about being inclusive under the umbrella of cultural heritage. So their specimens that you would see in the Natural Museum of History. Um, they can be artistic, they can be 
sculptures that you see at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, um, or they can be kind of more vague and they can be the things that a society define a society defines as socially significant and that is actually going to be relevant for a word that we're going to discuss a little bit later on um, and you should just keep that in mind because the other part of this um, this cultural property that we're going to talk about later I think is really super interesting and I think that you will find it interesting too or at least I hope you do <laughs> Our next word is, wow, I sounded like a Sesame Street character. The letter of the day is, um, no, our next word is actually super relevant to this podcast. It's digital heritage. And digital heritage is defined as the digital heritage consists of unique resources of human knowledge and expression. It embraces cultural, education, scientific, and administrative resources, as well as technical, legal, medical, and other kinds of information created digitally or converted into digital form from existing analog resources. Where resources are born digital, there is no other format but the digital object. Digital materials include text, databases, still and moving images, audio, graphics, software, and web pages among a wide and growing range of formats. They are frequently ephemeral and require purposeful production, maintenance, and management to be retained. Many of these resources have lasting value and significance and therefore constitute a heritage that should be protected and preserved for current and future generations. This ever-growing heritage may exist in any language, in any part of the world, and in any area of human knowledge or expression. And this actually comes from the UNESCO Charter on Preservation of Digital Heritage that happened on October 15th of 2003. So if the language sounds a little bit dated surrounding digital, that's why. Um, and so actually... This podcast is considered digital heritage because as I am making it and as this information is being produced digitally or as this um, definition says, born digital, um, it kind of enters this world, the ephemeral um, of digital materials that will be considered a part of our long and probably forever growing heritage story. Um, and digital heritage then in and of itself becomes something that is being produced every day. So, you know, your Instagram posts are digital heritage because they encompass a identity, a person, and they are accurately and significantly chronicling a part of their lives, a part of your life, and it can be also considered an archive. And so as a result, digital heritage is literally almost everything you do on the internet, I guess you could say. Um, some people would probably agree with that and say not everything you do on the internet is important, and I would say the same. Um, but this definition is kind of trying to say that digital heritage in and of itself is our existence in the digital world and what we as humans do online. And now for the controversial uh, word, we're going to try to find heritage, and if my mentor is listening to this right now, she is probably laughing, um, because she also had us do an exercise where we tried to define heritage, and we all got really frustrated and really struggled because we just, like, could not, it for the life of us, define heritage in a way that, like, fully encompass the criteria that she had set for us. Not like she was giving us difficult instructions or anything, but she was trying to prove to us how difficult it is to take such a broad word like heritage and then give it parameters and say this is what it is. Because like we said before, for cultural heritage and cultural property, the meaning of this word changes based on the group of people, based on the the moment, the everything. <laughs> and so they define heritage. They give us a whole bunch of definitions. So they say, whatever you want to preserve for the next generations. Um, so that's just the first definition. The second definition is heritage is defined as the combined creations and products of nature and man in their entirety that makes up the environment in which we live in space and time. Heritage is a reality, a possession of the community, and a rich inheritance that may be passed on, which invites our recognition and our participation. That actually comes from the Quebec Association for the Interpretation of the National Heritage Committee on Terminology, which happened in July of 1980. Um, and then the last one is heritage means any asset or group of assets, natural or cultural, tangible or intangible, 
that a community recognizes for its value as a witness to history and to memory, while emphasizing the need to safeguard, to protect, to adopt, to promote, and to disseminate such heritage. Um, my favorite parts of both of these, um, these last two, are the a possession of the community and a rich inheritance from that second definition, because to me, that is really the most important part of heritage is this idea of possession by a community, that a community owns their heritage. And while they can share it with us and while they can make it public and make it something that others who are not part of the community can experience, that heritage is always a possession of the community. I also really like the third definition for the way that it states it reckon it's recognized by the community for its value as a witness to history and to memory, um, because memory is such a huge part of all of this and preserving a memory by preserving cultural heritage. So I just really like the language um, of the and the idea of heritage being this witness um, and by being a witness, creating the cultural heritage um, and a witness to a community's traditions, a community's beliefs, things that a community values, things produced by a community. Um, I just think that these last, these two parts of these two, of this definition are really beautiful and a really great way of breaking this down. I myself um, am not going to even attempt to give uh, my definition of heritage because I will once again grow frustrated by the nuances <laughs> um, and the many ways in which you could really define heritage. And following that line of the intangible, the things that you can't see or touch, but you can feel, um, or rather you can see, you maybe can touch, and maybe you can feel, <laughs> the next word is intangible cultural heritage. This was one that I actually used to get really stuck on. Um, in my introductory course, I felt very frustrated by the idea of intangible heritage as much as I was absolutely enamored with it. Um, it's one of those things that you're just like, but what does it mean? <laughs> and uh, they define intangible cultural heritage as the intangible cultural heritage means the practices, representations, expressions, knowledge, skills, as well as the instruments, objects, artifacts, and cultural spaces associated therewith that communities, groups, and in some cases, individuals recognize as part of their culture. This intangible cultural heritage transmitted from generation to generation is constantly recreated by communities and groups in response to their environment, their interaction with nature and their history, and provides them with a sense of identity and continuity, thus promoting respect for cultural diversity and human creativity. For the purposes of this convention, consideration will be given solely to such intangible cultural heritage as is compatible with existing international human rights instruments, as well as the requirements of mutual respect amongst communities, groups, and, indivi and individuals and of sustainable development. Two, the intangible cultural heritage as defined in paragraph one above is manifested inter alia in the following domains. Oral traditions and expressions, including language as a vehicle of the intangible cultural heritage, performing arts, social practices, rituals, and festive events, knowledge and practices concerning nature and the universe, traditional, craftsman traditional craftsmanship. That was a mouthful and I really struggled through the last bit of it. Um, so yeah, intangible cultural heritage, I think the oral um, traditions example is probably the best way to describe it because they really put a focus here on the way in which intangible cultural heritage is perpetually evolving and perpetually changing. And um, oral traditions are a great way to look at that because when you think about it, they change um, over time with each new reiteration to each new generation. And so the story changes bit by bit, but the core or the root of that oral tradition is, um, almost always there for it. Um, so that's like the best way that I can try and put this into simpler terms. And now after that, we're back to a term that I already mentioned above, which was above, oh my goodness, I already mentioned earlier, um, which is outstanding universal value. Um, so this is basically how UNESCO um, cho chose to define outstanding 
um, universal value. And I would like to note that it's been defined by UNESCO a bunch of different times, um, just because they think that the definition has evolved as the organization has evolved, and rightfully so, because it is such a difficult thing to truly define. So in 2008, they said that outstanding universal value means cultural and or natural significance, which is so exceptional as to transcend national boundaries and to be of common importance for present and future generations of all humanity. As such, the permanent protection of this heritage is of the highest importance to the international community, international community as a whole. The committee defines the criteria for the inscription of the properties on the World Heritage List. Um, and so that's really interesting because they're saying here that the universal outstanding universal value means that it cannot just be valued by the community in which it exists, but by the international community as a whole, and that this value is just so important and paramount to all um, that it is going to be considered of outstanding universal value for generations to come. They also give a list of attributes, um, for tangible and intangible universal value, and they say form and design, material and substance, use and function, traditions, techniques, and management systems, location and setting, language and other forms of intangible heritage, and spirit, feeling, beliefs, stories, festivals, and rituals. Um, and they say the list is for guidance, and it's essential that the attributes identified for a property should flow from the statement of its outstanding universal value and the justification for the criteria. Um, and that's because when sites for the World Heritage List are, nomina list are nominated, they, um, they do have a statement that they have to provide of outstanding universal value. Um, and this is overall just really interesting because, like, it's, it's very vague, as you can tell, um, but it's also very specific. And so it's once again kind of really dependent on what this governing body determines to be universal, um, outstanding universal value. So once again, super complicated. There's a lot to be said about it, and I'm sure it's going to come up, come up in future episodes because it's used a lot in this field. Um, and at times, one way it's used for one cultural heritage object versus another is completely different. A lot of the times it is, and it makes you wonder, so what exactly is um, outstanding universal value? Now, I just threw this next one in here, um, particularly because it's just super important to what I study specifically and what my research is in, um, but the phrase is the safeguarding of cultural property, and it's pretty self-explanatory. It's the high contracting parties undertaking to prepare in time of peace for the safeguarding of cultural property situated within their own territory against the foreseeable effects of an armed conflict by taking such measures as they consider appropriate. Um, an example of this just in general, um, I guess a modern example that you may have seen on Twitter or Facebook is that right now in Ukraine, um, a lot of Ukrainian museums and Ukrainian um, monuments have been safeguarded by putting sandbags around them out in public so that if a bomb were to hit them, they would um, be spared. And a lot of artwork um, will be taken out of Ukraine um, through trucks and things like that, if possible, and brought to other countries for safekeeping or brought down to bunkers for safekeeping. This happened during World War II as well, um, in Paris, actually, uh, right after Hitler entered France, or right before Hitler entered France. Um, they began the process at the Louvre and all of the other very important um, museums and cultural institutions at the time began the process of moving artwork out as quickly as possible. And if you are to Google um, just, you know, artwork during World War II or not artwork during World War II because then you're going to get a bunch of um, World War II artists who are also equally interesting. But if you try to look up um, museums during World War II or monuments during World War II, you're going to get a lot of images um, of artwork being protected or in various states of um, travel from one museum to the next. And in a lot of cases, they do also end up hidden um, in private residences um, in more, in like really dire situations um, where there isn't time to plan 
just to keep them out of harm's way. Um, and that's the way in which there is a safeguarding of cultural property. <laughs> and I added this one too, because I actually had never heard of this. And it makes complete sense because if we have safeguarding of cultural property, we also have to have safeguarding of intangible cultural, her cultural heritage. And they say that this definition is safeguarding means measures aimed at ensuring the viability of the intangible cultural heritage, including the identification, documentation, research, preservation, protection, promotion, enhancement, transmission, and particularly through formal and non-formal education, as well as the revitalization of the various aspects of such heritage. Now, I thought that was really interesting because I think basically what they're trying to get across here. Um, it's from the Convention for the Safeguarding of the Intangible Cultural Heritage in 2003. I think what they're trying to basically get across here is a kind of archival process, whether that be a verbal or a formal ar archival process in which intangible cultural heritage is recorded and then kept somewhere, some way. Um, at least that's what I get from this. I just thought it was super interesting because I've never actually heard or read of this idea of safeguarding of intangible cultural heritage. I've read about the concept, but not in these terms. Um, so I'm actually going to end up probably researching more of this on my own because I find it just super fascinating. And for our, um, our last, uh, vocab word, I thought we'd end with, um, something that you can all relate to, and that is stakeholder. Um, so a stakeholder is a person, group, or organization who has a particular interest in the heritage on the basis of special associations, meanings, and or legal and economic interests, and who can affect or be affected by decisions regarding the heritage. So in that line of thought, we are all stakeholders. Um, stakeholders can be literally anybody invested in any piece of piece of cultural property or art for any particular reason. Um, and stakeholders, more specifically, are people who are related to that heritage. So we talked about the idea earlier of cultural heritage being an inheritance of of something and a community that is surrounding this cultural object and giving it its cultural heritage status, those people are stakeholders. So if you have something in your culture, a tradition or a monument or a piece of art that is, you know, super important to you and something that you see as definitive of your identity within that culture, you are a stakeholder. You can also be a stakeholder as somebody who works in cultural heritage and is invested in making sure that these objects and these monuments and these sites and the intangible cultural heritage is kept safe because you have a stake in this and you want to see these things kept in the safest conditions possible and being provided for generations to come, you too are a stakeholder. Stakeholder really is everybody at once, um, and stakeholders have different um, meanings and different purposes within the field of cultural heritage. And actually, in a lot of cultural heritage sites and preservation of sites, um, they're encouraged to interact with the communities and interact with the locals within these um, spaces so as to see what they as stakeholders may feel is the best in preserving and conserving these um, sites and these objects and these pieces of art or to see the way in which their conserving of these objects may affect the community at large and they bring in stakeholders to make sure that they are not tampering with the heritage site or the monument in such a way that it doesn't ultimately affect the community or disconnect the community from that cultural heritage site because then it creates this whole complex issue of the world heritage governing bodies taking something that they believe to have universal value, but in the process stripping the stakeholders who are directly connected to it from their original heritage um, object. So it can be very complicated, but all of this is to say we are in our, all of our own ways our own stakeholders for our specific cultural heritage objects and then for other people's cultural heritage objects if we have a vested interest in them. Now that we're done with the vocab, um, we're going to quickly go through some of the conventions and the recommendations that I mentioned earlier. Um, 
mainly because I think they're interesting <laughs> and also because I think that these will probably come up in later episodes because these um, specific conventions, recommendations, etc. are brought up a lot in discussions around art and cultural heritage um, because they're kind of seen as the most important, the pinnacle of um, cultural heritage studies and just like making sure that things are done properly. So the first one that we're going to quickly go over, also wait, also these um, quick little abstracts and definitions come from the Getty. Um, they have a part of their website, which I will also link in the podcast description, that gives a kind of definitive list with links to PDF versions of all of these different um, conventions and recommendations, um, starting from the earliest known cultural heritage convention to the most recent ones. Um, and so I went through and picked out the ones that I learned about were the, that were the most important. Um, when I learned about them, we called them instruments, and my mentor um, spoke to us about how we should consider them instruments because they are tools for us to reference within the field so that we're doing things um, not only accurately but ethically. So for the first convention, we have the Hague Convention, the Convention for the Protection of Cultural Property in the Event of Armed Conflict from 1954. The convention seeks to ensure that cultural property, both movable and immovable, is safeguarded and respected as the common heritage of humankind. The convention encourages parties to prevent theft and vandalism of cultural property and proposes a distinctive blue and white shield-shaped emblem to identify protected cultural property. As with the Rovish, 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 I cannot pronounce the name, Pact, Cultural property and cultural institutions are to be protected in armed conflicts between states or between parties of the same state, as long as they are not put to military purposes. Special protection is to be given to those properties that are listed on the International Register of Cultural Property under special protection. Um, so yeah. Like I said, these are going to be pretty self-explanatory. The Hague Convention, as far as I remember, and I also included it in my thesis, um, is a direct response to World War II and the grand, the wide-scale um, art theft and damage that monuments and heritage sites took as a result of um, bombing and a lot of um, Nazi practices. There was a lot of um, a lot of direct orders from Hitler to go in and torch entire um, buildings and place explosives in places. And this um, convention is in direct response to that. So that in wartime and in just any time of conflict. Um, certain monuments and certain um, sites are kept safe. And that is also relevant to the Monuments Men, which is that it's not just that movie with um, George Clooney in it that a lot of people saw. Um, it's going to actually be the focus of a future episode because it's something that I am really passionate about and is also really, uh, really relevant to the research that I conduct. Um, but they are considered a function of this before this was even created, if that makes sense. Like, the work that they did and the work that other um, militaries put in during World War II to ensure that, and other countries rather, um, put in to ensure that cultural heritage was kept safe is the root of this convention. This next one I had actually not heard of before until I saw it on the Getty website and I was really excited about it because we talk a lot about accessibility so far in this podcast and it's super important to me. So this is the recommendation concerning the most effective means of rendering museums accessible to everyone from 1960. And it says, this recommendation focuses on museum education and access for the public, particularly for school children and working people. It calls on museums to serve as intellectual and cultural centers and makes recommendations regarding the physical and intellectual accessibility of museums, including hours of operation, admissions charges, and interpretation of material for the visiting public. The document recommends cooperation with schools and other educational organizations and the creation of education departments within the institutional structure to further the educational mission of the museum. Now, I thought that was really cool. 
Um, because something that you learn about when you take museum history courses is that museums were really seen as like a pastime, a leisure time for the elite. It's where the wealthy would go um, and, you know, hang out with their friends and go and see art. And then, you know, they would have their salons where they would talk about philosophy and art. And then, you know, you have the salons of the 17th and 18th century where art was, you know, seen, I keep saying, you know, but, uh, judged by the Academy. And then the Academy would present art in Europe, um, at these salons that they believed to be the pinnacle of art for the time. Um, and so they, in their inception, were considered very elite places and elite spaces to exist within. Um, and it wasn't until much later that museums really started to be considered public institutions where people should have free access as a way to gain education and to also be permitted access to resources that they wouldn't get in other places. Um, and so, I like this recommendation a lot, and I'm going to end up doing more research on it from 1960 um, that really calls to action this idea of the middle and lower classes having access to um, museums instead of it just being this kind of wealthy, elitist uh, club place to hang out, you know. Now, for the really big one, we have the Convention Concerning the Protection of World Cultural and Natural Heritage from 1972. This is the UNESCO con Convention. This is the big convention that we reference all the time, that we talk about all the time. It is a huge central focal point of a lot of the stuff that we do. And so it's defined as the World Heritage Convention was adopted in 1972 by the General Conference of UNESCO. It, it promotes an international perspective on cultural heritage by inviting members to state of, this of states to submit an inventory of properties forming its national, cultural, and natural heritage to be included in a list of world heritage sites. The convention encourages national efforts of protecting cultural and natural heritage and promotes international recognition and cooperation in safeguarding the heritage of the world. Um, so this convention is just earth shattering for the time because it it is the birth of what we now know as the world heritage list um the world heritage site list and it's what unesco at this point in time is most known for and the world heritage site list is a list that all of the countries in the world will nominate um different cultural heritage sites of theirs to be considered by the committee, and if the committee um, approves their proposal for entrance, entrance into the World Heritage List, they will then go and send um, teams from UNESCO from either from that country or surrounding countries of experts to come in and conserve and preserve the area, and then ultimately they should also provide assistance and um, resources to the community in which those th those sites exist. Um, that unfortunately doesn't always happen the way it's supposed to, and that will be the subject of another future podcast episode um, because it you could talk about it for ages. It's just it's a very complicated process, um, and it has a lot of different um, pitfalls to it that, as time has gone on, have become more and more glaringly apparent. Um, and yeah, like I said, we'll talk about that in a later episode. So, second to last, we're going to talk about the Unidroit, Unidroit Convention on Stolen or Illegally Exported Cultural Objects from 1995. This one is of particular interest for me because I actually, once again, do a lot of research on stolen objects and illicit trade, um, and so I find it to be super fascinating. So, the Unidroit Convention addresses the problem of theft and the illicit trade of cultural property. The document defines the nature of objects covered and includes provisions for the restitution of stolen property. The convention also calls for the return of illegally exported cultural objects and outlines the circumstances under which property shall be ordered returned. Requests for return shall be brought within three years of the state learning of the location and or identity of the possessor of the stolen or illegally exported object or within 50 years of the actual, actual excavation. The convention calls for fair and reasonable compensation to be paid where the possessor of stolen or illegally exported cultural property can show ignorance of the crime and demonstrates due diligence at the time of the purpose, purchase. 
Wherever possible, payment should be sought from the party who illegally transferred the property. With the agreement of the state requesting return, the possessor can also choose to retain the object instead of compensation. The convention includes a special provision with regards to the return of with regards to the return of cultural property of tribal and indigenous groups. The 50-year limit does not apply to objects that were made by tribal members or are used for traditional or ritual purposes by the community. Um, I don't really, I really don't need to explain that um, any more than it has already been explained. That's actually why I like the Unidroit Convention so much, because I feel like it is pretty thorough um, compared to other conventions and other recommendations. Um, it isn't always followed, unfortunately, and there are a lot of loopholes despite the thoroughness of such convention. Um, but once again, is going to come up in future episodes because it is so, so relevant to what I want to talk about on this podcast. And I just think it's really interesting. People honestly find, you know, stolen art and illicit trade in the art field to be something like quite interesting. It's always really big in the news when it does happen. Um, and there are a couple instances I'd actually really like to do an episode and you guys can let me know if this would interest you. There are a few instances where there were these, crazy thefts, um, and they were not, um, drawn out by burglars, but by museums themselves, and it's a super, super wild ride, so let me know if you'd like to hear about that. And for our last convention for us to talk about today, and the last thing that we're going to talk about on the pod today as a whole, we have the Convention for the Safeguarding of Intangible Cultural Heritage from 2003. The convention, building on the 1989 recommendation on the safeguarding of traditional cultural and culture and folklore, establishes the the oh my goodness, I am so tired of talking. It establishes the necessary measures that states should take in the safeguarding of intangible cultural heritage (ICH). The convention defines the nature and forms of ICH, oral traditions, expressions, language, performing arts, social practices, rituals, festival events festive events, traditional craftsmanship, and knowledge and practices concerning nature and the universe, and recommends ways to preserve them. Noting the threat that globalization and social transformation pose to ICH, safeguarding measures include identification and documentation of traditions, research, preservation, protection, and promotion, transmission, particularly through formal and non-formal education, and revitalization of various aspects of such heritage. The convention also creates the Intergovernmental Committee for the Safeguarding of the Intangible Cultural Heritage and establishes a fund for financial assistance. Um, so yeah, that once again, I feel like these conventions and these recommendations get more and more thorough and detailed as time goes on because they've learned after so many years that if they are not thorough and not completely, um, clear with what should be done, um, states and governments will find every single way they can, and museums and other cultural institutions will find every single way they can to circumvent, um, these rules and these guidelines that they've set up. All right, guys, um, I was concerned that I was, uh, not gonna make it to the hour mark because I've never done something like this, obviously, and we are at an hour and seven minutes, which is wild. Um, and I am super grateful that you stuck around to listen to this this long. I hope that it was really helpful in getting an idea of what this field is about and what we are going to be talking about in future episodes. And now you have like a basic vocabulary that you can use and show off to your friends when you want to talk about art and cultural heritage. <laughs> um, I really, the, the inspiration for this episode is actually something that was brought up to me when I was writing my thesis, and it was that my mentor, who I've brought up a bunch in this episode, she told us that we should see our thesis proposal and our subsequent thesis as the idea of baking a cake, and that when you're baking a cake, you, or you're writing a recipe to bake a cake, you're breaking things down in their most basic form because she stressed to us constantly that the things that were natural to us, that came natural to us because we had been studying them for years, were not going to be natural for everybody. And we had to write as if we were explaining things for the first time to people. Um, and I've kind of kept that in the back of my mind. And when I was trying to think about what I wanted to do for this episode, I was like, oh, I'm going to bake a cake. 
with a bunch of vocab and definitions, and I'm going to give you everything that you need to follow along with me for future episodes. So I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and I cannot wait to talk to you guys next time. Have a great week, and I'll see you next Sunday. Bye!